This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. This is Hall of Famer Alan Fanica, and you're listening to Ira and Clark on the iTest for Two. This is the I Test for Two podcast, and that, that is the Baylor University fight song. I'm Clark Judge. I'm Ira Kaufman. And we're joined today by the Baylor Band and, of course, our Hall of Fame producer, Mr. Ian Glendon. Now, Ian's always here, but the Baylor Band, uh, not so much. But this is a special occasion because they're introducing today's special guest. That would be columnist John McClain, who covers the Houston Texans for the Houston Chronicle and who went to Baylor University, the upset winner over previously unbeaten Gonzaga in last night's NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament Championship. Now, we're going to get to John in just one minute. But first, a couple of things, guys. Ira, Eamon, I noticed that Tampa Bay coach Bruce Arians got a Super Bowl tattoo last week. Got a Super Bowl tattoo. So, Ira, my question, when are you getting yours? Well, I think the bigger question is where the hell did he get it? Now, I've talked to Arian since then, and I don't have the guts to ask him where. It, I think it's on his shoulder, but you can't really tell, Clark. So we can't tell somewhere else. Uh, <laughs> if I'm going to get a tattoo, it's going to have my wife's name on it. Uh, not <laughs> that, that is the political answer, Clark. And, and you and John know that's the only answer. It's correct. <laughs> Politically correct and very smart. Ian, uh, I know you're more a TB12 fan than you are a Bucks diehard, but uh, you getting one? Uh, I, I'm, I'm still working on the full face uh, of Tom Brady on my back. That might yeah. be a little ways away. I'm still trying to get a little bit bigger so there's more room because, you know, there's a lot of Super Bowls to, to fit in there. You get a full face of Tom Brady and that might help your social life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's move from the sublime to the hilarious. Did you guys see Aaron Rodgers last night on Jeopardy? Um, he's doing it for two weeks as a guest host. Did Ian, did you or Ira see him? I did not. I Ian? did not. I did. I did. Oh, I was did. curious. Okay. <laughs> well, as you know, he's the fifth guest host for Jeopardy. And the last question last night in Double Jeopardy had to do with daytime TV personalities. And the clue was accepting a Lifetime Achievement Emmy. He said, quote, just take 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are. So they had 30 seconds, but Ian, you don't. Let's go immediately to the audio to see what the defending champion answered. Over to our two-day champion on the end. Scott, did you come up with the correct response? Who wanted to kick that field goal? <laughs> <laughs> That is a great question. Should be, should be, should be correct, but uh, unfortunately for this uh, this game today, that's incorrect, and you're going to lose zero. Thank you for that, and congrats on your two-day win streak. <laughs> so that is hilarious. It is hilarious. You know the answer? Do you know the answer to that one? Uh, I would say Phil Donahue, maybe. Okay, Ian does know the answer. Ian, tell him. 
Actually, I do not know the answer because I wasn't paying attention after that. Oh, okay. It's Mr. Rogers. It was Mr. Rogers. And, uh, anyway, I thought it was hysterical. But Ira, I've got one more for you. One other question for you. Which Hall of Fame voter knows more about the Houston Texans, the Houston Oilers, the Houston Astros, you name it, anything Houston? He knows more about than anyone on this or any other show or planet. And the answer well, is my cousin lives in Galveston and he thinks he knows about it, but he's uh, he's he's way in the distance from our guest today who Clark, I think you'd agree. He he kind of defines what a great beat writer is, and that is he knows what's going on in that organization before they do it. And he tells his readers and that's the way you do it. Absolutely. Now I'm looking for an answer. Tell me his name. Can you say his name? John McClain. Can you John say McClain. his name? John McClain. You are correct. It's Houston Chronicle columnist, Baylor grad, and longtime friend, John McClain, who may not be the lone star of Texas, but I'll tell you what, he's certainly one of them. He's here with us today. And John, anything happening with you, the Texans, Baylor Bears that we should know of? First of all, thank you for having me, Clark Iron, here, and I appreciate it very, very much. I'm a little... Uh, I'm a little hoarse from my celebration of Baylor winning uh, only the second national championship in men's basketball in our state's history to the 1966 Texas Western team that beat the first all-black starting team that beat the all-white University of Kentucky coached by Adolph Rupp. Also only the second men's championship in Baylor's history. So, I've been celebrating that all night because I remember as a Cub Scout when I was eight years old going to my first Baylor football and basketball game. So I've been very passionate about those teams with my school. And uh, thank you guys for having me. And uh, with me on my horses. Did you see that coming? Absolutely not. I thought Gonzaga would win. I thought Baylor had a chance to reach the final four. The team was great last season, didn't get a chance to win it all, of course, because of COVID-19. They returned all but uh, one starter and two of their top eight players. Had a good bench. Scott Drew's a good coach. But I picked Gonzaga before the tournament, picked Gonzaga before this game. I was stunned at the decisiveness, the thoroughness. Baylor beat them in every way possible to win 86 to 70, and I don't think anybody saw that, including the most diehard Baylor fan. John, I'll mention something here that I mentioned on the show last week. You could have had a double championship there, except for our UConn Husky women, and of course the officials had a little bit to do with it, but they stopped your Baylor women in the uh, Elite Eight, and it was a great game, but that was a terrific game. I love the women's tournament, love the men's tournament, but I loved watching the Baylor team. Honestly, I thought they might be the best team in the tournament. I love watching the women because they've won three national championships. And back when all our, uh, the main sports were terrible, Kim Mulkey uh, was winning those titles and coming close on other ones. And all the Baylor fans, of course, went ballistic because they didn't call a foul on the last shot. And as I said on my two talk shows a week I do in Waco, I said, hey, hit your free throws. You know, don't turn it over. Shouldn't come down to one shot. But I thought going into the tournament, Baylor women had a better chance to winning the title than the Baylor men. And uh, the only thing better would 
have been, I told my wife, I would love to have been in San Antonio for the women or Indianapolis for the men. But before the tournament, if I had a choice of picking one, I would have picked San Antonio, not because it's closer, but because like you, Clark, I thought the Baylor women had the best chance. You know, uh, John, I, I see the hat you're wearing. First, I want to say that your Texans can learn a little bit about smothering defense from the Baylor basketball team. That That's number one. Uh, number two, John, this is a Hall of Fame-centric show. You are a very respected voice in that room. Keep it short, John, but I'm going to give you a, a chance to uh, give a couple of thoughts about a guy that I can't believe is not in the Hall, which is Bud Adams, and I know near and dear to your heart. And, John, on the 2022 ballot, I assume he'll be on there, and I assume he'll be a finalist, is one Andre Johnson, who was one heck of a wide receiver. Uh, some quick thoughts on both of those guys, John. Well, first of all, Bud Adams, there's a lot of things people don't know. And on the centennial presentation, I did everything I could. The first person, Lamar Hunt, contacted about forming a new league was Bud. And they announced it in Bud's office here in Houston. Bud uh, did a lot of things, helped loan money to teams to keep them afloat. He traded the rights to Joe Namath to the Jets for Jerry Rome, basically to save uh, the New York franchise and basically to save the AFL. You know, we always say, can you write the history of the pro football without this person? You cannot. With Bud Adams, he first hired an assistant uh, black general manager. He recruited players and signed them from the uh, Southwestern Athletic Conference. There was a lot of things Bud Adams did back between the first interest with Lamar Hunt in 58 when they were introduced by Lamar's older brother, Bunker, and both of them had tried to to buy the Chicago Cardinals, and the Bidwell family told him no, and that's how it came about. And there was a time at one point where Al Davis said he wanted to start signing the NFL's free agents. Lamar said no. And they, Lamar said, okay, Al's on that side of the table. Anybody that wants to start signing the NFL's free agents, which means they really went to war, stood over there with Al, and Bud went over there and sat with Al, and they immediately started pursuing the NFL's free agents. And then uh, there was a merger shortly after that. But you very seldom see anybody give Bud Adams credit for that. As far as Andre Johnson, I covered every one of his games. When he retired, and these are some things I'll use in the presentation. When he retired, there was only two receivers in several important categories. And it was either Jerry Rice and Andre Johnson or Marvin Johnson. Uh, Marvin Harrison yeah. and Andre Johnson that did that. And uh, and he played, unlike Marvin, he didn't play with a great quarterback. Unlike Jerry Rice, he didn't play with two great quarterbacks. He played with a bunch of average Joes and some below average. You know, John, three times he led the league in receiving yards per game, and that, and that to me is a key statistic. Um, John, let's talk about the Texans for a second. Their first draft pick, John, later this month, that doesn't come till number 67. Their second pick, 109. So, John, what is the Texans fan reason to believe that this team can rebuild in any kind of quick uh, manner? They don't. They won't. They're terrible. This time next year, there's a good chance they could have the first pick in the draft. 
they got to hope that uh, that uh, somebody like Joe Burrow or Zach Wilson develops next season in college that makes it an easy choice because right now we don't see a Trevor Lawrence in college football where you know it's a, 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 a gimme to make that pick. Sean Watson, because of all his legal issues and because he wants to be traded, I don't see him playing here. They The plan was to trade him before the first day of the draft on April 29th. Six teams were seriously interested. They were going to start those negotiations sometime after April 1st. They thought they could get three ones, two twos, a defensive starter in the line or cornerback, and they might ask for more because when you have six teams bidding, no telling what you could get. You see what the 49ers paid to uh, move up to the third spot. What would they have done if they had a chance to get Deshaun Watson coming off a great season in every statistic, 25 years old under contract, $10.5 million this year and under contract through 2025. And then he started with a lawsuit, 22, as we record this. And uh, so I don't think this will be settled anytime soon. A legal complaint's been filed by a, a woman. And then the NFL is investigating and teams have put it on hold. Meanwhile, teams are making moves, San Francisco and Carolina, who are the teams that really wanted him. They've moved in position. They have other quarterbacks. And once this draft is over and five teams take quarterbacks in the first round, they're not going to get anywhere near what they thought they could get for him because of the legal issues. They let his favorite receiver, Will Fuller, go. They cut his red zone target, tight end Darren Fells. They brought in 33 new players in free agency or in trades. The only one to sign more than a two-year contract is a punter. So a lot of those guys won't be on the final 53. But I look for this team to be terrible on both sides of the ball. Right now, the starting quarterback is Tyrod, not Tyrod, but Tyrod Taylor. And the backup is Ryan Finley. And maybe they'll compete to be the first 017 team. We're with John McLean, Hall of Fame voter, John McLean of the Houston Chronicle on the eye test for two. And John, let's get into the Deshaun Watson story. As Ira said, nobody knows that team better than you. And you often tell us what's going to happen before it actually happens. So if you could look into your crystal ball for this year and tell us how this thing will play out at the end of the season. Is he a member of the team? During the middle of the season, is he a member of the team? And what do you think the chances are now of his getting traded? First of all, in January, they said they weren't trading him. And then when new coach David Culley finally got to talk to Watson on a Zoom call a few weeks ago, and he told Watson how they wanted him to be the centerpiece of their rebuild and um, you know how much they loved him and Cully was fired up about working with him. They brought back offensive coordinator Tim Kelly, who Watson wanted back. They hired Pep Hamilton, one of the best quarterback coaches in the NFL. And Watson explained he didn't want to be back, and he wasn't going to come back, and he was going to sit out, and he's willing to risk millions of dollars. Now, if they didn't trade him for the draft, which they would have before, and say they were going to trade him at the trading deadline, to a team that maybe lost the starting quarterback for the season, then he would add to report by the trading deadline. If not, to keep his contract from tolling, he would have had to report in December. And so 
I never expected him to play. And he was adamant about being traded. And I don't think his legal issues all of a sudden change his mind about being traded. He has never spoken on this subject. Nobody has on the record. All sources close to Watson usually leak to the national media. And the uh, team is going to be terrible. I can't imagine he would change his mind and want to come back when he sees all the changes that have been made in personnel and on the coaching staff, including some guys that he liked. So uh, the only I don't see anybody trading for him before the trade before the draft on April 29th. So then he sits out. If he misses camp in preseason, I think it would cost him about three million. If he were to sit out the whole season, which I don't think he would, because then the contract he make 10.5 million instead of 35 million in 2022. He could report late with a back injury and not play. But uh, there's so much uncertainty with the legalities. You have 22 women who say they were sexually assaulted by him in their lawsuits. They all tell a similar story. We have all those lawsuits on our website. Our sports website is texassportsnation.com. And I've read every one of them and they're like, wow. And then uh, the, the uh, plaintiffs are represented by a high profile big time attorney, Tony Busby, well known in Houston and Texas. And then Watson hired Rusty Harden, who is the uh, attorney to superstar athletes. And last week he produced 18 women stepping up using their names that said they had massages from Watson and he behaved appropriately. And then Jenny Ventress of Sports Illustrated interviewed a woman who was not part of the plaintiffs right now. And so that's 40. That's 40 masseuses over the last two years. And you guys know players get a lot of massages. They usually have one person or maybe two. So most people believe he's going to be suspended under the personal conduct policy, as you guys know. You don't have to be convicted. Charges don't have to be filed. But it's a matter of how long the suspension is. And uh, he would appeal. What would be best for Watson, I think, assuming this is not behind him, when they start getting paid, they're going to be paid over 36 weeks instead of 17, have Goodell put him on the commissioner's exempt list. That way he would still get paid and he couldn't play while the investigations continue. Because if he's not on the commissioner's exempt list and he stays out, it's going to cost him millions and millions of dollars. So we are far from knowing the outcome of this. I believe he will be traded. There's no way they're just going to out and out cut him and have to eat all the dead money that they would have to. I, I know this, teams will lowball. And when you only have one team interested or one or two, it's certainly not like it would have been before the draft when you had six teams seriously interested in him. John, I know you told us about what the market was before all these allegations happened. What do you think the market would be next? Clark, I think that depends on who's doing the looking. What if, what if, um, let's see, Miami has Tua Tungavailoa as its quarterback, and they're pretty good again and think they can go to the Super Bowl, but Tua is not great. 
and maybe he's kind of disappointing in his second season. He doesn't take a step up. Or what if he suffers a season-ending injury? And they have a chance to trade for Watson, and they still have a lot of picks. I could see a team like that. The Jets will draft Zach Wilson, so if something happens to him, they're not all of a sudden going to trade for Deshaun Watson. I almost think Nick Casario, instead of trying to get three ones and two twos and a defensive starter from the Jets, ought to call them up before the draft, even though nothing will be settled, and say, hey, would you swap that number two pick for Watson? That way they could draft Zach Wilson and get on with their rebuild. Don't know if the Jets would do it. What we do know, guys, is at some point this will be behind Watson, and he'll be a great quarterback. He's 25 years old. You know, people don't talk about Ben Roethlisberger's uh, legal problems. They don't talk about uh, when Michael Vick came back from being in jail for killing dogs and then uh, Zeke Elliott. Nobody talks about it anymore. Eventually, it'll be behind Watson. His reputation will always be tarnished, but he'll be judged more on the field because you guys know how fans are. Remember when Leonard Little drove drunk and killed Grandma? Was came sure. back? Went to the Super Bowl, got cheered by sellout crowds with the Rams. So a team may think, you know what? I will take this on if the owner lets them. I'll take this on and then think about when it's all behind him. We're going to have a great quarterback. He has a no trade clause, but I don't see at this point. I would imagine, I don't know, but considering all the negativity here that Watson would, this would only make him more determined to be traded. But I don't see the Texans just giving him away. It was an unprecedented situation before the lawsuits. Now it's like double unprecedented. Speaking, uh, John, speaking of ownership, you had a good relationship with Bob McNair. Um, John, we're realistic. He's, he wasn't a perfect man. He, he made his mistakes. But, John, he represented consistency. He had patience. And he set a good tone overall for the organization. Now there's Cal McNair. How much of this change since uh, Bob passed on um, uh, is reflected in, in, in the troubles of this organization? Cal McNair took over the franchise in 2018 when they were 11 and 5, won the division. He was over it in 2019 when they were 10 and 6 and won the division. And nobody had a problem with him. Then last year they bottomed out. And people understood when he fired Bill O'Brien, he was never more popular. People were so happy. But they don't like the fact he kept Jack used to be the executive vice president of football operations who was instrumental in the hiring of Nick Casario. I got no problem with Casario. There wasn't, a, there wasn't a, a personnel director out there more deserving of being a general manager after 20 years and six Super Bowl rings with the Patriots. So he was ready. He made bomb out. First time he's ever had Donald say, but I liked that hiring. And he admitted in his initial news conference, he and Easterby are good friends from their six years together with the Patriots. And Easterby runs, basically runs the organization except for personnel. And people are just livid that, that Cal McNair has given him that authority and that Cal McNair and his mother Janice, the controlling owner, and his wife Hannah, that they believe in Easterby and they support him 
as much as they do. But the McNair family, their philosophy has always been give them a lot of money, give, hire people you think are good, give them the resources to do their job, keep up with what's going on, but don't interfere with decisions like a trade of DeAndre Hopkins. And last year, they spent more money on players than any team in the league. They've been paying three general managers at one point. They were paying Rick Smith, Brian Gain, and Bill O'Brien. Now they're playing, paying Brian Gain, Bill O'Brien, and Casario. He signed a six-year, $30 million deal. So the McNairs spend a lot of money, and they stay out of it. And right now they're getting a lot of heat because of Easterby, and that's the only reason. I have no issues with Cal McNair running the team other than his support of Easterby. John, what's your early feeling snapshot of, of David Culley? He's not a figure uh, that seems to be very, uh, you know, uh, charming and uh, gets talked about a lot. Part of it is, you know, this is a 4-12 and football team. But, John, what do you know about Culley? And does he seem to be the type of guy that can, that can oversee a rebuilding program? David Culley had coached 27 years. He spent most of his career with Andy Reid. Then he worked for Sean McDermott and then John Arbaugh. Cal McNair said the first time he heard of Cully was, was when uh, Nick Casario brought him up when he, uh, he and Easterby flew on the McNair's plane, to Bedford, Massachusetts, to pick up Casario to bring him back here for his official interview. And McNair did that because this was the third time they had pursued Casario. The first two times were buffed by the Patriots, and he never spoke to him. So he thought on the plane, he could have, you know, three and a half hours to talk to him. And that's the first time he'd heard David Tully as a coaching candidate. Now, I have no idea what Casario saw or heard about Cully to give him his first interview as a head coach. After his first interview, Cal McNair told me, I really like this David Cully. And I didn't pay attention to it. I said, that guy's got no prayer. And when it came down to him and Leslie Frazier coming to Houston, I thought, sure, it would be Leslie Frazier. One of the things I've learned about Cully, and I've called people that have coached with him, people that played for him, I've done columns on them. He's a great guy. He's got a great personality. He's 65. I'm older than him, and I wish I had his energy. He's so excited to be a head coach. Players like Robert Griffin III was with him in Baltimore, talked about him a lot, how he was behind the scenes with the players the way he had their back, the way he communicated with them, the way they, they knew exactly where they stood. He didn't BS them. But he also, as the others were, very, very happy. He had a chance to finally be a head coach. And, of course, this is going to be his only opportunity. He's got a terrible team. He's going to be the face of the franchise. He's my 13th head coach here, and I've never seen him get less attention because – Right after he's hired, then the Watson thing dominates everything. And then Casario makes 33 personnel moves, which I've never seen anything like it. I'm sorry. He brought in 33 new players, and counting ones he got rid of, it's like 45. I've never seen that. So Cully has just got not, hadn't gotten much attention. And they've been very bad about making people available. He's been available once since his initial 
news conference in January, Casario has done an interview with a radio station and Albert Breer since his introductory the first week of January. So we haven't been able to talk to him. So they've not done the best job of making people available. But so far, everything I know about Cully, I like. As far as coaching, you know, he's coached receivers. He's coached quarterbacks. One reason they wanted to Rod Taylor, he coached him. He was a quarterback coach in Buffalo when they went to the playoffs. Taylor led them to the playoffs where they lost at Jacksonville. And uh, Pep Hamilton coached Taylor last year. And then Casario watched him twice a year for three years as starter at Buffalo. And when Cully said, I would like to sign uh, Terod Taylor, then uh, Pep Hamilton was on board, and so was Casario, and they did it. So I don't know much how much behind the scenes he's involved in personnel right now. I think it's mainly Casario and the personnel department and the scouts. But uh, uh, I like the fact he hired Lovey Smith. Ira, I know you know Lovey very well, and I'm assuming you think that's a good hire. And uh, I think I think it's a great hire. And uh, but we'll see how it plays out. It's not going to be fair to judge him as a coach with a team this bad that could be pushing to break the all-time record for the worst. They finished two and 14 two times. Both times it was not a quarterback worth the first pick, so they drafted Mario Williams, and then they drafted Devion Clowney. And then the only time they did draft a quarterback first overall was in their inaugural draft when they drafted David Carr, and that didn't work out either. John, last one for me. Thanks so much for doing this for your time. I know you're real busy. John, what do you uh, foretell um, this fall? Suppose they open up NRG. Come one, come all. You can come in. Masks are optional. You know, we don't know what the scene will be in, in September. But, John, if they open it up, who's going to show up? What, what is, uh, what's the feeling from uh, Texans Nation right now? Until last season, when every team had to sell, uh, couldn't let had to sell reduced capacity. Texans had sold out every preseason game in history, and the driving force behind that was their team president, Jimmy Roots. He could sell, you know, icicles to an Eskimo, and Jamie done a tremendous job. He resigned because he didn't want to work with Jack Easterby. Easterby was starting to try to interfere with what he was doing, overseeing business side of the organization so he's gone and they promoted his longtime assistant greg grissom he has got the toughest job in the organization because he's got to try to sell a team that fans don't think is going to be worth the darn they don't like the way they're run they don't like jack used to be being in there and i know a lot of my friends who've dropped their season tickets some of them rolled them over from last year and now wish they hadn't but uh, it's not – I don't think the NFL is going to be like the Texas Rangers. They let everybody in last night their stadium because our governor told them they could. The Astros are only doing 50%. I would imagine in the NFL they're going to start it off at a, at a percentage and work their way up, and that will be good for the Texans because uh, I don't see them uh, drawing anybody because people are so down on the team. If Watson was back – of all the quarterbacks I've covered going back to 1977 with Dan Pastorini, I've never been as captivated by a quarterback as I am Deshaun Watson. When he takes a snap, I love to watch him. 
whether he is getting sacked, running away from a sack, getting hit, throwing, running. He's just a mesmerizing player. And I think the next time I see him on the field, it's going to be with another team. So this is going to be a hard sell, Ira, a really hard sell. And what they better be shooting for is 2022, where people have some hope, because right now they don't know enough to have hope. John, a couple last ones for me. Um, you talked about the, the Texans trading him, and you think the likelihood of that is good. But we had Andrew Brandt on here a couple weeks ago um, and asked him about the situation. And he said, listen, if you give in to him, you've got a line of people outside your door, the general manager does, saying, do the same thing for me. Get me out of here. So this is a precedent. And he said, for that reason, I don't think they'll move him. But he said they probably will. But I don't think if I were in that position, I would because of the implications for the rest of the team. And he said, secondly, he's got to understand he doesn't have the leverage. They do. He can sit out the season, but they can play. He's not getting any money. They can play. How do you respond to that? I have great respect for Andrew, who has been on the record the entire time, as they would not trade Deshaun Watson. Yeah. He has said that many times. And I've had five people with other teams tell me they can't trade Watson. They're making it like the NBA, where a few control the many. And I said to each of them, that's easy for you to say, because you don't need a quarterback. So it's easy for anybody to say he was not in this situation. As far as other players lining up and saying, I want out, let them. What other players do they have where they go, oh, no, they pay a lot of money. Watson, of course, this is, you know, Trent Williams was about, wasn't about money in Washington. His was more, I think, about Bruce Allen. So he set out the entire season. It worked out great for him. Usually money can make a difference. But in this case, money cannot. He's got $156 million contract extension. He got $27 million to sign. That contract kicks in in 2022 when he makes $35 million base. And so it's not about money. But do you say you kept him here and you forced him to come back and he was miserable and he had a bad attitude and he hadn't worked as hard as he usually does? What is the point of having a player miserable at the most important position on the team, the leader of the team, who's been a tremendous leader up to this point, come back under those circumstances. I don't see it happening. I think anybody else, if it was that circumstance, they were undergoing what the Texans are right now with Watson, free demand, and his legal issues. I think people might be a little more understanding about why they would move him. And the last thing, How's this going over with Houston fans, with Texans fans? Are they lining up behind him, or are they saying, get him out of here? How's this going on or going uh, down with those fans? Before the lawsuits, people were, I would say, is 90% on Watson's side, and that they blame the Texans for making him feel this way. And so people were blasting the Texans. And, and, Jack, Easterby, and Jack Easterby gets blamed for down here. Is like what Bill O'Brien, when he got fired, used to be now gets blamed for mosquitoes, humidity, traffic, <laughs> and everything else we have down here. It's Jack Easterby's fault now that Bill O'Brien is gone. And so the fans, you know, there's a lot. And the way I judge it 
calls to talk shows. I do a mailbag every Friday that's on our Texas Sports Nation website. And I'm very careful about what I allow to run. And as I say, the accusers deserve their day in court. They deserve to be heard. Every one of them can be correct. Watson is innocent until proven guilty. He could be right. None of us has a clue what went on behind closed doors. So he tried to be very fair about it. But more and more people now are blaming Watson. And I think uh, that's why I think as time goes on, you're going to see more of that. How many times have we seen a player want to be traded and fans turn on them? Yeah. Especially if it's a good player. That's what usually fans are. So it's uh, it is a it's an unprecedented situation for the trade demand of a great young quarterback at the height of his career and now because of the legal ramifications. John McLean, thanks so much for the time. And do us a favor if you could uh, tap into your Baylor and Waco connections. And if you could send Chip and Joanna Gaines to St. Petersburg to help Ian Glendon with his apartment, please. It needs to be redone. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll put Ian in line. As you can imagine, I just found out my old newspaper there, the Waco Tribune Herald, they're buying the building to put their new headquarters in. Right. And they, they now seem like they own most of Waco. He had Trey Wingo and RG3 in his suite last night based on pictures. I saw it. I'm sure there's a lot more, but I'll certainly pass that on. Clark, Ira, Ian, thank you guys for having me on. I hope you have a great rest of the week. And remember, sick of bears. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Always, always a pleasure with John McLean. That was Hall of Fame voter John McLean of the Houston Chronicle and of Baylor University. And Ira, I love hearing from Johnny. He knows that team, as you said, better he, than anybody. He, he, does, he does our profession proud. Clark. And, you know, you and I, we look around that Hall of Fame room. We see the Dan Pompeys. We see, uh, you know, Barry Wilner in, in his way in the Associated Press uh, and Domowich in, in Philly. And Clark, it, um, it kind of makes you proud of, uh, of what can be in our profession. No, I, I agree with you. It does. And uh, there, there are plenty of others, too. Rick Goslin, you mentioned Ron Borges uh, and a, a guy in Tampa, Ira Kaufman. Thank you, Clark. Thank you. Uh, that's going to do it for today, but we're going to be back tomorrow. Yes, tomorrow with a guest right here expressly for our producer, Mr. Ian Glendon. So who is it? Well, you're going to have to tune in to find out. So we'll see you then. This has been the eye test for two.